following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our call to worship is from the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the winds drive away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. So as I said, the title of the sermon today is also the Lord's Prayer. And even though we just prayed the Lord's Prayer, that's not quite what I mean, although that deliverers from the evil one is going to come up a little bit later. Um, What I mean by the Lord's Prayer in titling this sermon is that Jesus prayed a prayer for his disciples. Now, we are resuming in the Gospel of John here. If you were here last week while I was away on a little vacation with my family in New York, you might have seen my pre-recorded sermon that caught you up on what's going on with the, with the Gospel of John, which is really quite amusing to me. I would not have guessed that, we were, that, it was, that the timing has been what it actually has been until I sat down and went through my notes and tried to find all the dates and things. But we started all, about 10 years ago going through the entire Gospel of John, and I thought, well, we'll do this over the next year or so, and we'll, you know, we'll kind of do little series in between, and we'll get through the Gospel of John, and then we'll, maybe we'll do the Gospel of Luke or something. That would be really fun. That was in 2012. And I would, you know, it gradually kind of got strung out a little bit more. And um, it turns out the last time we visited it was five years ago, 2017. So here we are. We're resuming the, the Gospel of John in chapter 17. We left off with chapter 16 in 2017. And um, at that time, I, was, I remember I was joking, like, well, we'll, maybe we'll get through this by the time my son graduates from high school. Ha, ha, ha. Well, um, we're going to miss it by three days. <laughs> Um, but we're going to get through the Gospel of John before the end of June this year, and it's, it's fun to resume this. I encourage you to read along with us as we go. Um, it's a great way to kind of stay connected to what's happening on Sundays when you're doing your own kind of time in the Bible, if you have that during the week. And when we get to chapter 17, we're going to go the whole chapter today because it's all one piece. It's all one prayer that Jesus prays on behalf of his disciples right before he's arrested taken into custody, put on trial, convicted, and crucified. So this is one of the last things that Jesus says and does with his disciples. And it takes up the whole chapter, and I'm actually going to read the entire chapter. I normally do not read quite so much scripture. I'm going to read it in chunks. Um, But I think it's important to kind of get the, the whole movement for some of the things that I want to point out about it. And the other thing to note here is that I'm going to read it in a different translation than we usually use. Um, at Artisan. We're going to read it in the NIV translation instead of the NRSV. Um, So let me give you a quick word about that. This will be the first of, um, well, a couple um, nerdy word digressions here. Um, You probably all know that we read the Bible in translation, right? So we did not get the Bible dropping out of the heavens in English for us to read, let alone in modern English for us to read. We didn't even get it dropping out of the sky in 1611 with the King James Version 
um, despite what some people might think <laughs> about that particular version of the Bible. Actually, I don't even like to use the word version of the Bible because it's all the same Bible. It's just that we translate it differently. There's a number of good English translations from um, the original language, which in the case of the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, is almost all, the line, all, almost all Greek. Um, insert, it's all Greek to me joke here. It's not a funny joke, but it's a joke. Um, and so there's a number of good English translations, just like there would be for other Greek classical literature, like the Iliad or the Odyssey or Aristotle's Poetics or other things that you have pretended to read. <laughs> right? The Bible is in very good company. We normally use the New Revised Standard Version, which is what the red hardcover Bibles in our, I was going to say pews, but we don't have pews, like in, in and under our chairs. That's the NRSV, and I think it's a very good translation, but for reasons which I'll explain later, I'm going to read from the NIV. So, all of that to say, I know that some of you are very visual people and you like to read along in the Bible on your phone or something. Um, if you were going to use the Bibles, I'd ask you to use the screen instead, where the NIV will be printed. If you're reading on your phone, of course, you can find any translation you want. Um, and so what I'm going to do is go through this chapter, this prayer, which is frankly complicated and opaque in some parts. Um, in, I, think, I think I'll probably stick to two big chunks of it, and I'll insert my thoughts as we go a little bit and then pause for longer, longer thoughts uh, a couple of times, all right? So uh, it starts out, John 17, 1. After Jesus said this, uh-oh, we already have to stop for a second, <laughs> After Jesus said what should always be your question when you read something like that. Now, I'm going to go and read the entirety of chapter 16. No, not really. Uh, but, but I will tell you what comes at the very end of chapter 16, what Jesus says right before John goes, after he said this. He prayed this prayer, right? So what, what Jesus had said right before this uh, in John 16:33 is, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And I think that kind of sets up a lot of what Jesus is going to say in the prayer that follows in chapter 17, which is as follows. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He goes on to pray. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. Now, in the actual Greek, it literally says, I have revealed your name. And I, normally I wouldn't care about that kind of little change, but you might see that that will connect to some of the other things that he says. I'm not sure why they chose not to include your name in their translation, but he says, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. I will pause again and ask you to think and notice through the rest of this prayer, at least this big section, how many other words that indicate possession there are. Now, that's a possessive pronoun, isn't it, fellow English nerds? They are yours, right? So where else in this passage do we see that type of language? Just take note as I read on. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. There's your name again. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. By the way, other other translations say destined for destruction, but the Greek just says except for the son of destruction. There's no indication that Judas's betrayal of Jesus was predestined from all time. Um, but that would be a different sermon for another day. Uh, he goes on to say this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. I'll ask you to leave that block of text on the screen so that people can see it as I continue to talk about it a little bit. Jesus says two times, um, they are not of the world even as I am not of it. And I want to think for a few minutes about what it means to be of the world. So I could ask you, what does that phrase mean to you? You might have a range of different answers. I suspect that they would include things like, well, it's like, what does it mean to be out of this world? Right? They're not that. Or, or for something to be not of this world, it's otherworldly, it's very alien to the world, it just truly does not belong here. Right? So when Jesus says that his disciples are not of, the, are not of the world, as he is not of the world, you could take it to mean that they are alien to the world, they don't belong in this place any more than I do. Let me give you another way of thinking about that phrase. Some of you heard me talk about this before, but this will be new to a lot of you as well, I believe. That phrase, of the world, was it a prepositional phrase, I think? It could mean something else. Spanish is somewhat unique, maybe not completely unique, but it's, um, it's in the minority among languages that I'm aware of, which is not all of them, but it's some of them, in the way that it indicates possession, right? So I could say, this is my pen. It's a Field Notes space pen, by the way, um, because I'm a pen nerd. I could say, this is my pen. But if you were to describe it, you wouldn't use a pronoun. You would say, that is Scott's pen. And you'd use apostrophe S to indicate possession. That is the most boring thing. Why is that in a sermon at all? Stay with me for just a second. (laughs) A little longer than a second. Stay with me for another five minutes. In French, which is a language I studied in high school, there is no apostrophe S way to indicate possession. The same is true, I'm told, in Spanish. And that's the extent of my foreign language knowledge. But the way you would say 
Scott's pen, sorry, I keep popping my microphone every time I do that. It'll be a way of remembering in your head. Remember when he was really careless with his microphone technique? What was that about? If you were to say Scott's pen in French, you could, you could try, try this in Google Translate. Just type in Scott's pen in the English panel and then click French. It would say, le stylo de Scott, um, which means the pen of Scott. Right? Now, in Spanish, it's the same thing, except I don't know any Spanish words. So in Spanish, it would be like the Spanish word for the, <laughs> the Spanish word for pen, the Spanish word for of, and then Scott. <laughs> Right? So the pen of Scott is how you say Scott's pen. There's no apostrophe S in those languages. And guess what? There's no apostrophe S in Greek either. You, if, I don't think there were pens at the time of uh, Jesus <laughs> exactly. But if, let's say that there were, and let's say that I was there, and, and somebody wanted to say, the, the, you know, Scott's pen. Um, isn't that cool? It's from space. We didn't even know space was real yet. <laughs> um, you would not say Scott's pen. You would say the pen of Scott. Why am I telling you this? <laughs> this still doesn't make any sense. Here's where I'm going with this. When it says they are not of the world, any more than I'm of the world, it might mean that they are otherworldly, they are alien, they don't belong here any more than I do, but I think what it actually means is they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. The world does not own them any more than it owns me. These are both theoretically valid translations, just so you know. I, I, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk that the translation should have been different. I will say that in the New Revised Standard Version, it says what I just said. They don't belong to the world. And that's why I chose not to use it today, because I, I wanted to trick you into thinking this. <laughs> so how is a translator of the Bible to make such a decision? It's difficult. But what did your English teacher tell you? When you're reading in your own language, you're reading something in English, you come across a word that you don't know the meaning of. What do you use to figure out what it might mean? Kids? Somebody said dictionary. What kind of nerd looks in a dictionary? No. No, I'm talking about like if you want to skip over it and do the minimum amount of actual work. <laughs> Someone said context clues, which is the answer I was fishing for. A dictionary is a great resource, by the way. By the way, writers... By the way, writers, throw away your thesaurus. Just use a dictionary. It gives you what the word means, and then you can come up with a different word for it. And it's much better than a thesaurus. But that's a totally different sermon for a different day. It's probably actually not for church at all. It's just a little extra bonus nugget that I'm giving you today. We're going to rein it in here. You look at context clues. Which means, you look at what else is happening around that word that I don't know that might help me, a lazy person, figure out what it actually means. And it usually works, doesn't it? If you get totally stuck, yes, look it up in a dictionary. But you probably don't have to, actually. Translators can make the same kind of um, move when they're trying to decide how to translate something that could be translated in two different ways, such as the Greek phrase, of the world. Now, what do the context clues of Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John say? Well, what did I ask you to look for a minute ago? All kinds of language about possession and ownership. All of those possessive pronouns, yours and mine. All those phrases about belonging to something or someone. That's all, like, rich in this text already. And I would suggest to you that knowing all of that stuff when you come to the Greek phrase of the world, 
a better translation is to say, belong to the world. Some of you are still asking, like, yes, but why? <laughs> Literally, why are, you, why are you going on and on about this? Why does it matter? Here's why I think it matters. It's because there's a lot of, admittedly, very sincere Christian people who go through their whole lives deliberately trying to distance themselves from the world around them. As if it were inherently evil, and if they got too close to it, they'd get infected by it. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think that that tendency, which we have all observed, comes in part from interpretations of this text that are based on the whole idea of being in the world but not of the world. How many church kids are there in the room who were told you're supposed to be in the world but not of the world? And it's based on this prayer. It's this prayer because he's saying they're still in the world. I'm not going to be in the world. They're still in the world, but they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. But I don't think that means that they, just like me, are so distant and far above this infectious, toxic, awful, evil place that they can never get close to it, right? And then you have all that misinterpretation of the, the one line in the Bible that says God cannot look upon sin, right? That's, that definitely is a sermon for another day. I promise I'll get back to it sometime. But all of this adds up to us being uh, in a situation where as Christian people we are sort of assuming that we're not supposed to get too close to this disgusting, evil world because it will infect our souls. But the world is not disgusting and infectious and inherently evil. Now, certainly there is great evil in the world. I mean, turn on your station for five seconds. And absolutely, I think that as Christian people, we should be fighting against the evil in the world wherever we see it and in whatever ways we can. But don't forget, don't forget that in this world there are also sycamore trees. And this world contains Letchworth State Park. This world contains um, inspiring architecture. This world contains mind-blowing, not to mention life-saving scientific discoveries. This world contains music. And I think that that attitude of extra distance, extra separation, especially when it comes from a posture of like, I'm so, I'm so holy that I don't even belong in this place, makes us miss out on so much of the beauty in the world. And here's maybe the most important part, especially for those of you who are saying to me right now in your, in your heads, yes, but the world is terrible. It's broken in so many ways. I'm, I'm at risk all the time because of who I am. There's war in Ukraine. Uh, look at all the legislation that's happening all over our country right now to marginalize and harm certain people. All of that stuff is true, but if you want to be part of God's solution to the actual evil in the world, the worst thing, in my opinion, that you can possibly do is live your life so completely separate from it that you are never exposed to its realities. That you never get to touch and see and smell and taste. Not only the beauty, but the ugliness as well. Because that's the thing. If you're going to completely separate yourself from the culture, 
you miss out on the beauty, but you also miss out on your best chance to address the evil and ugliness and to be part of God's work in the world. By the way, if I still haven't convinced you with my linguistic nerdiness or my impassioned uh, celebration of the beauty of our, of our world, just look at verse 15 and Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Right? That's that way in all the translations. You can't, can't get around that one. Not that you take them out of the world, but what? That you protect them from the evil world. No, but that you protect them from the evil one. So what Jesus wants for us, his disciples, is for us not only to be in the world, but to be of the world, to be part of it, but not to be possessed by it or owned by it and not to be harmed by the evilness around us. Amen. (laughs) So, all right, let's pick it up in verse 20. And I'll read the rest of the prayer here. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me, there's more ownership language, by the way, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them. There again, the Greek says, I've made your name known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So the first sentence of that next section is pretty remarkable to me. It's really amazing. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus is praying in this room with his 11 closest friends, 12 minus the one who was the son of destruction, who betrayed him. We'll we'll encounter that story later. Actually, at this point, since that's coming later, probably all 12 of them are in the room. But he's not just praying for those friends. He says it even in the prayer. And, And Usually I'm not in favor of a person who's praying out loud communicating something to the people in the room. (laughs) Have you ever been in the room when people are praying out loud? Oh, Lord, I just pray that we would all come to know you better and that Susan would learn how to love her husband better. Lord Jesus, I just pray that David would... You know what I mean? (laughs) That is not the way... I don't recommend that type of prayer, but in this case, Jesus is praying, and he says, I'm not praying just for these people, but for all of those who will come to believe in, in me through their witness which is remarkable. So all of these apostles go out into the world and they begin to convert people to the way of Jesus and then those people go out into their cities and they have a house church and they bring their neighbors in and they begin to convert people to the way of Jesus. I don't really like the language of convert. It's like their, their minds are transformed by the blessing of seeing the unity of all these Christian people. 
going out in the world, and then their children are raised in the, in the faith, and those people go on to become uh, faithful followers of Jesus, and then they have children, and they have children, and they have children, and pretty soon we're sitting here in Rochester, New York, in the year 2022, 2022, and sharing in this same faith, and reading this prayer, and realizing that Jesus was praying for you and for me in that moment. How powerful is that? And then it gets hard because what he prays is something that we don't always want to hear. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. That they would all be one just as you and I are one, he says, praying to his father. that they may be brought to complete unity. And the reason I think this is hard is because I don't want to be in complete unity with everybody who says they're a Christian. And some of them don't want to be in unity with me. And what do we do with that? I would hope I truly believe, and I would hope that it would be true, that unity does not mean we always all agree on everything, but rather that when we are in community with each other and we have a disagreement, we offer each other the space and the grace to coexist across that difference and not to allow it to drive a wedge between us. (laughs) And yet, most of you know here in the room today, that in about two months, we will come to the end of almost 18 years of affiliation with uh, uh, our denomination. And that doesn't necessarily feel like unity. That doesn't necessarily feel like they all may be one. (laughs) By the way, if you think that I am like a very skilled pastor, preacher, pilot, and I have a nice, long, freshly paved runway to land this idea, you would be wrong. (laughs) This is messy, there's a lot of tension, and we are right in the middle of it. We're going to sing an old hymn called Jesus with Thy Church Abide in a few minutes. Hopefully a very few minutes. (laughs) Um, And uh, one of the lines in there it says, may they one in doctrine be. <laughs> now, we, we use a lot of old hymns that are kind of repurposed into modern music. We've done a couple of them already today. Uh, <laughs> this particular one comes from a, a section of the church that's very preoccupied with precise theology and what they would call doctrine. <laughs> um, I don't need to name it, but it's definitely the Reformed tradition. Um, <clears throat> uh, I I had to promise myself I wouldn't say that. Um, But the funny thing is, it's not funny, actually, that that we're all singing this hymn, and and maybe we're not one in doctrine, but I guess it probably depends on what the word doctrine means, right? And we need some context clues. Doctrine, by the way, does not mean every little aspect of how every person interprets the Bible. That would be um, a bait and switch or something like that. 
Doctrine is the big, top-level Christian theology stuff, the stuff that makes it into the creeds, and not the real long ones, like the stuff that makes it into the short creeds. That's doctrine. And listen, our reason for separating from our denomination is because there are human people whom Jesus loves, who are made in the image of God, who could not feel safe in this congregation because of the affiliation that we had with a denomination that was not willing to affirm their personhood or allow them full participation in the life of the church. And it took a process of much deliberation and praying and hoping and wishing before we realized that that was never going to happen and that we needed to move on because of our love for that group of people. I have no regrets about that, but my goodness, it's heartbreaking because I would have wished to stay in fellowship with that wonderful group of people who I am one in doctrine with for the rest of my career if it weren't for this aspect of the differences that we have. There's not a single one of them that I could possibly imagine would reject any part of the Apostles' Creed any more than any one of us might on a given Sunday. So we're one in doctrine But I guess perfect unity will have to wait. Hmm. That hymn at the end has this little tag that we sing over and over again. Some of you will know it already. It says, oft in sorrow, oft in woe, Onward, Christians, onward go. We're going to sing it like eight times. Often sorrow, often woe. Onward, Christians, onward go. And sometimes the unfortunate reality is that the sorrow and woe that we experience in life comes from our fellow Christians. And it's heartbreaking. But it's true. And I guarantee you, for every time I've been on the receiving end of that, I have been on the giving end of it. May God forgive me. Did I mention I don't really have an ending for this? I wish that I had a nice tidy bow I could tie up and put on this. But all I can do is hope and pray and repeat these words from the prayer of Jesus because so much of it has come true and some of it is not yet complete. I pray that it would be true just as Jesus prayed that it would be true. That we may be brought together in complete unity. More and more I think that won't happen until the life to come. But I'm not going to stop hoping and praying and wishing that it will be sooner than that. Because it's not just about sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. There's a reason that Jesus gives in the prayer for unity, that he's praying for this. It's then, if, we, if they are one in complete unity, he says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So we are actually less able to communicate and transmit the love of Jesus when we are not in unity and community and fellowship with each other. And so I know it is so hard to maintain relationships with people who are annoying or hurtful 
or harmful or toxic. And there is a point where some of you are going to have to cut off those relationships. I do not tell you that you cannot do that. When you need to cut off a toxic relationship, do it. But I, I'm really worried that being given the permission to do that gives all of us permission to not try very hard and to, to, go, to skip right ahead to the cutting people off step. So do you hear me saying both things, especially those of you who are parts of a marginalized population? You do not have to stay there and take the abuse that you've been receiving. You have permission to move on in love as best you can, as best you know how. But especially if you are a, a privileged person as I am, our job is to continue to, to stand in between. Because nobody is persuaded from a fractured relationship. Nobody is persuaded by someone who thinks that they're better than them. How many of you have ever changed your mind when someone came up to you and said, you know what, I'm smarter and better than you, and I just want to explain some of the things that you're doing wrong and dumb. May it be true. May we someday, if not see complete unity, at least see a little bit more of it. And may it be not the result of compromise, but the result of real transformation in the hearts and minds of other people who need it, and when we need it, in our own as well. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.